0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras.
1: Hello, uh, friends! Uh, welcome to season five of uh, Wisdom of Friends show. I'm your host, Caloros, and today I'm really delighted to be introducing you to a good friend of mine. His name is Peter Thompson, who is now regarded as the UK's most prolific information product creator. Starting in business in 1972, he built three successful companies, selling the last to a public company after only five years of trading for 4.2 million pounds, enabling him to retire at the age 42. Since that time, Peter has concentrated on sharing his proven methods for business and personal success via audio and video programs, books, seminars, conference speeches, and mentoring programs. Peter now specializes in helping coaches, consultants, speakers, trainers, and business owners to grow their company so each can create a business and a life of choice. He shares the precise steps on how to share more of your authentic messages with more people than you could ever reach on a one-to-one basis. Friends, he was recently awarded The lifetime achievement award by the Institute of Sales Management. He's also been recognized as the companion of the Institute of Sales and Marketing Management and is also a fellow of the Professional Speakers Association. Friends, this is a fascinating conversation and an episode filled with a lot of golden nuggets where we talk about topics related from NLP to product creation to gain clarity and to how to turn your knowledge experience and expertise into ongoing streams of cash he has this excellent and very popular program online called the achievers club i highly recommend that you check that out and you can go to his website peterthompson.com and i hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as i did so without further ado let's welcome the one and only peter thompson So uh, good afternoon, uh, Peter. Welcome to the season five of uh, Wisdom of Friends show. And I'm really excited and delighted that he took the time to be on this program. And let me start off with my first uh, impressions of you. We got introduced through a mutual friend, Simon Bucknell, who yep. speaks very highly of you. And, uh, and I had a chance to review your... Uh, incredible background and all the magnificent accomplishments that you've achieved in your career. And I knew having you on the show would be uh, a treat for our audience. So I'm so glad that you made the time to be on this program. So welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much indeed, khan I'm delighted to be here. And the way that you've set it up, I Better make sure I'm pretty darn good with what I share with you then, have (laughs) not (laughs) I?
1: No, that is so great. And uh, one of the ways that, Peter, uh, we kick off our show is by asking our guest a very simple yet profound question. And that is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by and how have you applied it to your life?
2: Wow, that is a cracking question. And I'm very into quotes, Cal. I absolutely love quotes. I find they give me a mental hook to hang my hat on and keep ideas in my mind so that I revisit them on a regular basis. And for the last probably five years, I would suggest, there's been one quote that has been running constantly throughout my life and my mind. And I picked it up. It wasn't written by these two guys, but I picked it up in their book. And the two authors are Chip and Dan Heath, Uh, H-E-A-T-H, Chip and Dan Heath. They've got brilliant books. And this one is called Decisive, How to Make Better Decisions at Work and in Life. And the expression is this. It is so simple and its resistance is created through a lack of clarity. And I absolutely love it because I think it applies to every single area of my life and anybody else's life. If I'm writing an email, it's a piece of marketing I've got to get clarity for the reader. If I'm designing a website, I've got to get clarity for the the viewer of the video or the reader of the page. I've got to have clarity with what the offer is and what I want them to do next. And in my own life, I I find this is a constant theme because it's part of my nature. Uh, I have to have clarity before I take the next step. And uh, my Colby score, which is 5393, means I'm a fact find, but quick start is my, my driver. And so I've got to find out the information. And once I've got that and I've got clarity, boy, can I get into action really quickly. So I live my life. I share it on every presentation I ever make. Resistance is created through a lack of clarity.
1: I love that. And I think uh, you know, one of the expressions that I found to be really useful for me in my own life is, Clarity is power, and the more clear you are, the better the vision is and uh, actions just flow from that point on. Uh, And for the benefit of the audience, Peter Thompson is now regarded as the UK's most prolific information product creator, and he specializes in helping coaches, consultants, speakers, trainers, and business owners to grow their companies so each of them can create a business and a life of their choice. So I'm curious, Peter, is... What did your parents do, and how did that shape your life? And in other words, where did you grow up, and how would you describe your childhood?
2: Well, firstly, I would describe it as fantastic. Um, I, I had a fantastic childhood. I was very close to my parents. I have one sister. My father was a major in the British Army in the Tank Corps. Uh, And he went through the sort of classic wealthy family, which mine wasn't at that time, by the way, became uh, it had been before. And he went to Sandhurst and uh, he was very successful in his military career. But my mother was a professional pianist and she started playing the piano when she was four and only stopped playing a year before she died when she was ninety five. So she played for 91 years of her life. She played professional piano. Wow! And so they were an amazing combination. My, my father was at times could be a rough army uh, major, you know, with language to match. And my mother was an absolute lady. And so I grew up with these, this, this mixture of parents. And I think the biggest lesson they ever taught me, uh, especially my mother, was positivity, was to look on the bright side to see what you could take out from any situation. You know, back to that old expression, W plus H equals O. What happens plus how you react to it equals the outcome that you experience. And so I think I learned that. And one of the defining moments of my life, Cal, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share, is when on New Year's Eve, in uh, when I was age two, my birthday is September, and when I was just two years old, uh, on that December 31st, I was sat at home and this is a long time ago and i was warming my hands because i was copying my sister who was doing the same on a one bar electric fire and in those days electric fires did not have guards on them and copying what my sister looked to be doing at two years old i reached out and grabbed the bar which was you can imagine pretty horrendous so i think firstly i was lucky to live and secondly, obviously, I was taken into hospital. I was there quite a long time while they rebuilt my hands. And then when I was age seven, I had to go back into hospital because my hands grew, uh, but the skin grafts didn't grow. So my hands were almost almost fists all the time. I couldn't open my fingers and I had to go back into hospital and have the, my fingers all cut back open again. I was in for another month and a bit and have more skin grafts and my hands sewn up. Now, you, if you met me, you can't tell. The, the surgery was just amazing. And uh, I became a goalkeeper because I played football. I became a wicket keeper and I became a writer. So, three key things that I would do with my hands. And I used to play golf. So, it was very much into hands. So, whether that was a compensation, I don't know. But if I could share one little story from it, which shaped my life, which was. When I was seven and had gone back into hospital and my hands were being rebuilt, there were no children in the burns department, which was fantastic. So I was put in with all the men. And then one day towards the end of my stay, one of the nurses came along and took me with her into the children's ward, which was empty. And there she'd run a bowl full of warm water with some luxe soft flakes in it. And she told me to put my hands, which now had got the bandages off them and the plaster of Paris casts, And she said, I want you to mess about in the water, Peter, uh, because these soft flakes will make your hands softer uh, and it'll help in the repairing. And I said, yes, great. And I was seven years old. And she said, now stay there until I come back. She forgot me. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I, I was there for seven hours because an authority figure had told me that I must not move. Now, you realize, Cal, in seven hours as a seven-year-old you've got to pee at least twice (laughs) (laughs) but what the reason i know it shaped my life was it gave me this feeling as I always, until I did this through some personal coaching, it gave me this feeling of always wanting to be in control of my situation. Now, that was really powerful for me, but it was also, it held me back in certain things because I had to be in control. And it wasn't until I did some good coaching and had a good mentor and coach and a number of people who helped me that I changed that top value, which was control, into flexibility. And that was about, oh, only probably six or seven years ago. And the change in my life because of that change of that value has been amazing. So that was a real turning point in my life, which I learned to deal with and then learned to change.
1: Now, that is a fascinating uh, story, and thank you for sharing that because it certainly is an inspiration for all of us who are listening that oftentimes uh, events in our childhood could play such a big role in how we navigate life, and sometimes yeah. it can hold us back. Sometimes it can be uh, useful. So I think the key what you did, what I'm hearing, is uh, having the coaching and the right kind of uh, mentoring, surrounding yourself with people that helped you uh Realize that and uh, take it from control to flexibility is one of the realizations that helped you uh, along so it's it 's really it's it 's amazing what you shared and uh, so that brings up another question. I know that uh, you started in the domain of business in one thousand nine hundred and seventy two and you built three successful companies. And, uh, and you sold them to a public company after only five years of trading for a significant sum of uh, 4.2 million pounds. And you retired at the age of 42. And so my question to you is, uh, what's the story uh, behind that? Is there, did you always know that you wanted to get into business? Or how did that journey unfold for you?
2: Yes, it, it's, it's so true. And it's back to this control thing. I used to work in a bank. And uh, the manager that I worked for, I, I used to go on permanent relief to different branches of the bank and help out whenever they had a person short. And I remember once he asked me to go to a branch I didn't want to go to because I'd been to it before and they were all a bunch of lazy so and sos. And I had to do all the work, which I didn't fancy doing again, even though I'm a hard worker. And um, I said to him, No, I didn't want to go. And he turned around to me and said, It's about time you learned to take orders. And of course, my high control freakery kicked in <laughs> and I said no uh, I, I don't need to be spoken to like that I'm leaving and so I left and I decided I would work for myself and I became uh, I used to sell stationery uh, I had my own little stationery company and then I went to work for a private investigator and uh, tracing absconded debtors and it was amazing how that happened was I, it, I just sort of fell into it I met the guy But very soon I realized, well, whilst he was a lovely guy, he had no head for business. And so I turned around to him and said, look, uh, we should be in partnership on this. And uh, you give me half the business and I'll run it and we'll both make a lot of money and you can continue with the lifestyle that you want to do. Um, And he said, no, he didn't want to give me half a business. So I said, well, in that case, I've got to do it all on my own. So off I went and did it all on my own because that's the sort of thing that I just love to do. And it's continued there ever since that I started in that business. I became a private investigator. I was tracing absconded debtors. And within two years, I created a system, Cal, where we were being asked to find 4,000 people a month, which is a lot of people every month. And we just had a system, of a way of doing it. And I used to do sort of investigation work. We built some bugs and debugs and a recording briefcase and crazy things like that. And then finally, I got into the very early days of car phones, which led me into the leasing industry, which is the business I built and sold um, when I was 42. And I, I sold that for a few million pounds, as you've mentioned and it was it was a fantastic journey and since that point what i decided to do was to share what i'd learned and keep learning by the way with people because i absolutely love sharing my ideas and helping other people to succeed
1: now that is so great and what i'm hearing from your sharing here peter is that there are a couple of elements one is that you like a challenge. You absolutely uh take on a challenge regardless of what the circumstances might be. You just decided sure. that you're going to walk out of the bank and do something on your own. You started your own stationary business and then you uh, moved into a private investigation and then into the car phone in- industry. And so you've been looking at opportunities along the way and you were able to capitalize on it. And yeah. so my question is, and I want to kind of like uh, take a step back here. And so, what was the transition from a stationary business to the private investigation? Did you see an opportunity or how did you know that this was something that might be a good opportunity or was that uh, how did that happen?
2: Right. Well, with the stationary business, I found that I was it was full on because, of course, like any business, when you start it, same as my investigation business, you're having to do all the selling in the day, you're having to do the buying in the day. You've got to do the typing of all the reports. And then in the evening, you've got to do all the accounts. And whilst I was enjoying that, I didn't see it building to be something that I could leverage in a big way. And then when, it, when I met the guy who was the private investigator, I realized that what I could do was I could build a team of people who could do, I could teach them to do what I did. And if I made the team bigger, I could get more clients. And if I got more clients, I could get a bigger team and so on. And I could just build the business Uh, because what I I managed to do, and it's happened with a lot of the businesses, Cal, was to develop a system. I remember years later reading the book by Michael Gerber, which was the e-myth, the entrepreneurial myth. The basic theme of which for me was that you have to, in business, develop an extraordinary system that allows ordinary people and ordinary activity to generate extraordinary results. So it's XOX, extraordinary system, ordinary activity, extraordinary results. And I think what I've managed to do in my businesses over the 45 years I've been in business is develop systems that allow people to be themselves. Because I'm a great believer in that you can't burn bright every day people burn out when you ask them to do that but if you can build a system that allows them to be themselves and They can still generate fantastic stuff. This links back to your very first question is and I create an expression myself Which was this people will never consistently do who they aren't and by that I meant that I've discovered and I think many people realize this that people will always do things that are in alignment with their core beliefs, value, and identity, more so their identity than anything else. And if you can align what you want them to do with who they are, they will do it all the time. They will do it easily, without stress. They'll they'll enjoy it. They'll have fantastic results. They'll feel engaged with the business and with the owners of the business and the, and the purpose of the business. And if you try and get them to be um, do things that are not in alignment with who they are they get stressed they soon leave they're not happy and, and all the rest of it and and to give you the, the if you like the proof of the pudding in answer to this lengthy answer to your question um my pa rachel has worked with me for 31 years my community manager beverly um who happens to be my sister-in-law as it happens there is she's worked with me for 34 years my sales guy steve one of the best salespeople I've ever met, has worked with me for 35 years. And if that's not proof of creating a system in which people are able to be themselves, I don't know what is.
1: That is uh, really uh, fantastic what you just shared. And I think uh, the three important distinctions that we can learn from this is one that people will never consistently do who they are. not so it's really their alignment of the core values and essentially their identity. So knowing yeah. what a person's identity is and aligning them to their right calling or choice of work can play, pay big dividends. And the secondly, uh, what I'm also hearing is you've learned or mastered the art of uh, creating systems because uh, as you said, uh, that book you mentioned about uh, E-Myth, uh, Michael uh, Gerber's book, yeah. It's you can either work, in the business, so you can work on the business, and Correct. I think uh, systems Correct. systems definitely help you do that. And I think and the the other thing that I'm also noticing, which seems to be a, quite a pattern, is clarity. Clarity is so important to you, and yep. uh, and I think you had that clarity early on when you transitioned from the stationary business to being the. F- uh, personal uh, investigation business is I cannot build a, a legacy just doing stationary business. And this is something that I can really transition into a system that can enable and build a team around it. And it seems like uh, you've continued doing that, building good teams around you and uh, helping them uh, create uh, reach their highest potential. So that's so great. And so my next question to you, Peter, is uh, when you look back at your life up until now, you know, we've, we've always had these breakthrough success moments and uh, moments of luck where uh, divine intervention or grace stepped in. Uh, was there a moment in your career or your business success uh, when life was never the same again moment for you, the strategic inflection point?
2: Yes, there was. And again, I, I love your questions. They are, these are lovely searching questions that ma- make anyone think, and they're certainly making me think, Cal, so thank you for them. Um, I, I love being having this opportunity to share the, the depth rather than just the surface answers that uh, sometimes one gets asked. It, it was, and it was funny one, it's a strange one I think you'll think is the answer, is that having sold my business... I sold it on a one year earn out period in the sense I got 2.6 million at the front and 1.6 million after one year and a million of that was in cash and and the balance of 3.2 million was in shares now the company I sold out to was a main board public company in London uh, traded on the London Stock Exchange and when I did the deal with them the shares were at £2.42 but they were estimated to go to six pounds because the company was highly acquisitive and also was looking to be acquired by an even bigger group, which is why I did the deal in the first place. So the shares that I'd taken were three million were probably going to be worth about seven million. So I was really selling the business, in my opinion, for about eight million. However, the, they run into difficulties and the shares fell from two pounds forty two to sixteen pence. which cost me about three million pounds. I was in a period where I was under a restrictive covenant of the first year, not be able to sell the shares. So uh, when it got to the point when I could, they were, they were valueless. So all at that time, I'd spent the five years building up the company to sell it. Uh, I'd had the million, but of course you've got to pay tax on, I'd invest in property because that was the right thing to do. But in the UK market, property was falling out of the sky. The whole thing was a complete mishmash, right? Mm -hmm. So, the biggest lesson I learned wasn't a success, it was an apparent failure in the sense of I lost the money. I therefore lost this uh, beautiful house that my wife Sharon and I had bought. We had 30 acres, the River Avon ran through the garden. It was a seven bedroom mansion. If you just saw the picture, you'd go, wow. Um, we had other property as well, and they, everything was falling out of the sky. And we had to move, and we moved. We had a little. Um, a seaside place, and we we moved to this little seaside place. And off one end of the house was glass, overlooking the sea, which doesn't sound too bad to be there, doesn't it? You know, you think, oh, well, it, it, life's hard. Here I am looking at the sea. But what we did was we took all the packing boxes that we had to pack our big house into, and we stacked them against the view, so we couldn't see the view. Hmm. And we said to ourselves, we'll never see that view again until we sort our lives out. And so we sat down and we absolutely determined to get back to where we'd be. And and we made a plan for it. And it involved a lot of hard work and a lot of focus. And uh, we set to. And within six months, we were straight. And within another year, we were well on the way back. And uh, just absolute, you know, take what comes. You can't go back and create a new beginning. You can start again now and create a new ending.
1: I love that, and it's uh, it's it's amazing what you shared. It's it's like what we envisioned that the way things would work out. Sometimes life is full of surprises, and uh, mm-hmm. there are circumstances that are outside of our control. But what we do have control over, as you just rightly stated, is how we respond to the situation. And 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 you absolutely took some really uh, strong actions to get back to or even exceed. Uh, your baseline as to what you're set out to achieve. So that's really inspiring. That's really great. And uh, so taking a step back uh, memory lane, uh, Peter, uh, the question I have for you is, who were your mentors growing up or whom did you look up to or wanted to emulate or anybody that you want to give a shout out to that's made a difference for you?
2: Yes, I've been very lucky. I mean, the first one really was my mother because she was so positive. Um, The second one was... um, Uh, This is somebody's father. There's a well-known chef in the UK called Heston Blumenthal. In fact, I think he's quite well-known around the world, actually. A very, very unusual chef. He's a scientist chef. So he comes up with the most amazing things like snail porridge uh, and all sorts of weird stuff. And I have eaten in his restaurant. But I met him when he was about 18 because he used to deal with his father, who is unfortunately now dead, Stephen Blumenthal. And that was when I was in the leasing business. And Stephen was the most successful small ticket broker in the country. And I needed a mentor because I have found in most businesses, you need to talk to people who've been there and done it because it saves you so much time, so much effort, so much money. If you want to go there and do it as well, because you can copy what they did and add your own take on it. So I went to meet, I got introduced to him and I went to meet him and he became my mentor for four years. So a real shout out to him, wherever he may now be. And then the other one, this is or the ones really, are all the audio programs I started listening to because in 1985 I received a mailing piece from Nightingale Conant, the world's largest audio training company. Uh, The people who sort of produced people like Bob Proctor, some of Tony Robbins stuff, Tony Alessandra, obviously the original Earl Nightingale. Nightingale,
1: The Strangest Secret, yes.
2: (laughs) The Strangest Secret. And the program was Lead the Field, which contains The Strangest Secret. And this was, the, it was the free trial. I thought, I'll have a go at it. I listened to it, thought, wow. And I became an audio junkie. And I never stopped listening to audio programs. I listen now, but now they're podcasts on my phone and plugged into my, you know, when I'm in the car. And I listened to Lead the Field and this just changed my life. And The Strangest Secret changed my life as well, as you know, you become what you think about. And it was so powerful for me. I started listening to everybody and anything I could get my hands on. And then when I'd sold my business, I went to Nightingale Conant and said, I've made a program that I'd like you to publish. I didn't go with an idea. I just absolutely went with the program itself. So I thought that was, you know, that was the best way to approach it. And so they said to me, um, and you may not know this actually, Carl, they said, um, the program we've made, we like it, but it isn't the area we want to be in because it was very salesy. They said, would you revoice Lead the Field, including the strangers secret for the UK market? And I said, wow, absolutely. I was so proud. That's like being asked to rewrite the Bible, you know? Mm. And uh, <laughs> so I went, fantastic. And that was the start of me writing, creating, and marketing uh, information to the point where I now have, I don't know, seven books, 15 booklets, 200 audio programs, programs, not individual, 200 audio programs. 200 video programs, more information you could shake a stick at. Uh, And that was the starting point was me listening to lead the field, which I think should be compulsory listening for every child in the world.
1: No, absolutely. That is really an inspirational story. And and, uh, it's it's amazing that you went in not with an idea, but an actual product to Nightingale Conant and... uh, and and you actually saw an opportunity when they suggested that you turn it around and uh, you know redo some of their uh, product existing product line. And now, as you stated, uh, you have over hundred audio and uh, video programs written and recorded. Then you're uh, with the as a leading UK author, and that's really fascinating. Uh, that's very very inspiring, Peter. And um, Thank you. Also, uh, the other question that I'm kind of like want to ask you is now: Have you? It seems like uh, your business uh, and your your life's experiences with all the ebb and flow and the successes you've had. So, what would you say now at this point in life? Your definition of a successful life or a good life?
2: Oh, what a great question! I, I have a personal definition of success, and it's this. Being happy what I'm doing this moment Hmm. That's my definition Because that isn't something I need to chase That's something I am And so again, I'm very keen, Cal, on this idea Which I've learnt over the years from a variety of sources uh, And had lots of thinking about it Is long-term change happens at the identity level Not at the beliefs and value level not at the skills and capabilities level, not at the environmental level, that's, that's the results that you're getting. But long term change happens at the identity level. Uh, consequence change is short term. I have this, I, I've written a lot of expressions. Let me share one with you, which is this. Um, Where motivation is the catalyst for action, towards motivation is the continuation of action. And so I know that those are consequence based. You know, if I don't do this, this bad thing happens. If I do do this, this good thing happens. So away motivation is only ever the catalyst for action because away motivation runs out in its impact as you move away from the problem. You know, if you've got a big block of ice and you don't like standing by it, when you move away from it, its effect upon you diminishes. So away motivation is only ever short term impact And to get long-term motivation self-motivation you need goals in place because you need the towards motivation which is the continuation of impact but if you really want to change if you want to be successful if, if you're not feeling currently successful then that change has to happen at the identity level and the identity level is characterized by the verb to be it's when people say i am rather than i believe or i can or i do or i have it's at that top level uh, um, Robert Diltz of NLP fame would call it the Diltz pyramid. I wrote a thing similar to that, very similar, 20 years ago called Wealthy. And it was all about the words you say out in your mind and the words you say about yourself. And when you say, you know, I am happy doing what I'm doing this moment, that's at my identity level because I'm using the verb, I, I, I'm using to be in the sense of the first person, I am. And I think if we're really careful about our definitions of success, then we can be successful all the time and not be something that we're forever chasing that we haven't achieved. I I love Cal just to add to this idea. I love measuring from where I've come, not towards where I'm going because I can always measure progress if I look back, but I can always get stressed if I look forward. So I I like to be absolutely measuring how far I've come not how far I've got to go.
1: I love that. I really love that. And I think uh, the two points that I'm, uh, my takeaway from your share, and there's so much value in what you just shared, but really the two things that stuck out for me or stood out for me was, I, the, the massive changes that we want to see in our life, the long-term consequences of long-term changes happens at the identity level. And that's yeah. a core beliefs, our core values. And then it's really about uh, being happy in the moment. It's not about chasing the future or trying to get to somewhere. It's right here, right now And how you say things How you are clear about the words we use Makes such a big difference In uh, in shaping our identity And our state of mind And then uh, really I like the idea of uh, You know, it's the reverse uh, gap Gratitude, it's looking back At how far you've come And that tells you how how much progress you've made So that's beautiful That's really beautiful Uh, The next question uh, And this is more of a hypothetical question uh, Peter, and this is Let's say we had a time machine, and if you could go back in time and talk to your young self, what advice would you give him?
2: Oh, wow. (laughs) That's a cracker. That is a cracker of a question. Um, Golly gosh. Um, I I mean, I think the glib answer would be uh, if you're going to sell a company, sell it only for cash. (laughs) <laughs> i think that might be one of them um, and, Or buy uh,
1: some apple stock or microsoft stock yes, <laughs> buy some apple
2: stuff yeah and, and you know there is i'm hesitating and struggling slightly with it is that even though it's a time machine's hypothetical question I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with the course of my life and i I've had some pretty hard stuff. I'm not saying, oh, poor me, by the way, Cal, Just say, no, I'm not that character. But I've had some hard stuff to deal with, you know, financially, um, not particularly emotionally, but I, uh, I could say got through that fairly quickly. Uh, but, you know, uh, physically, health-wise, I've had a few challenges over the years. And I just think, well, you know, it all comes along for a purpose. And, you know, what doesn't kill you cures you and makes you stronger. And I would say to that younger person, because I'm formulating the answer in my head now, I would say enjoy, enjoy every moment, enjoy every experience because there's always something to learn from it. And I I think it's Esther Hicks of uh, Abraham Hicks fame would say about life, uh, you cannot get it wrong and you'll never get it done. And, And that's part of my philosophy as well that I can't get it wrong because it is the journey and I can't get it done because I'm still here (laughs) so as long as I'm prepared to treat every day uh, as this fantastic adventure uh, you know, I, I write a journal. I write every morning. I write reflections every evening. I'm very task orientated. You know, if you looked at my disk profile, I'm high DI. And so I'm very task orientated. So for me, tasks are what I love to do. It's part of who I am. It's, it's part of my strengths. You know, when I look at my various strengths, I did a Gallup poll recently. on some strengths indicators, a Clifton strengths. Yeah, I, I like to f- like the fact of I live who I am and I think I would remind my younger self to live who you are and enjoy every single experience because there's always something to take from it.
1: I like that. It's really enjoying the journey and uh, because life is not a destination. It's really the journey. And I think also what I'm hearing is all the experiences you've had since uh, childhood, it's really shaped you in the person you've become today. So changing those experiences or I really would not... Uh, benefit in any way because it would steal away from the person you become now and uh,
2: you've, so, said it you've said it better than I said it no, You're absolutely right I will say it that way in future yes it would it would steal from the person I am today and I don't want to change that
1: no that is so great and then uh, I you mentioned earlier that uh, you were a, growing up you had some favorite sports you were a goalkeeper a wicketkeeper you played golf mm-hmm. so what are your uh, hobbies today are you still uh, golfing and uh, any hobbies and interests you would like to share
2: Yeah, by all means. Um, I don't golf anymore. I I had to go into hospital for an operation on uh, a lung. Um, It was a minor thing, but it has to be a major operation when it's that part of your body. And so I couldn't play for six months. And I used to play three times a week. Uh, And when I went back to it after this six month gap, I realized I hadn't missed it. And because I'm a bit all or nothing, as you probably gather, because it's, again, part of my personality, um, I stopped. And so the expression I used was I gave up golf and took up Sharon. Uh, Sharon being my wife. uh, So I get to spend more time with her. I'm not sure if she's pleased. I think she is. Uh, I was an early morning golfer anyway, so I was at the house really early and back before the day got started, really. Um, So I don't play golf anymore. I am a voracious reader. Um, I I read every single day. It appears on my do list every day. Uh, And I read every morning, and I read later in the day. I'm a a lifelong learner. Um, I I believe I did a recent... um, one of these assessment tests. I love these assessment tests. They sort of prove who you are to yourself. And my top skill, I was quite surprised actually, my top skill came out as learner. Mm. Uh, I'm a good activator as well, so I get things going. But I love to learn. So I'm listening to audio programs. I'm reading books. I would say that's probably my hobby. Other than my, you know, we have a few close friends and most of them are family as well as it happens. And we, all of us, we love food. Uh, which I have to be very careful of to make sure my weight stays where I want it to be. <laughs> and, um, and I love walking. So I, uh, not today particularly, because it's bitterly cold and there's ice on the pavements. But uh, other than that, I walk most days, even if it's 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour.
1: No, that's great. Yeah, speaking about books, uh, what books have you gifted or reread over the years? Any uh, particular ones that come to mind? Or?
2: Oh, absolutely. There's a book that I have given th- at least at least 300 copies away, um, and it is called Atlas Shrugged.
1: By uh, Ayn at- Rand. Yeah. By
2: Ayn Rand. Um, it's 1,072 pages. It's nine-point font. Um, there are no paragraph breaks, uh, and I've read it nine times. And I've given away 300 copies because I do believe that the philosophy of objectivism has a lot to uh, to say for it. I think there's some good information in there. doesn't mean I agree with all of it, but there's some great information in there. I, it was introduced to me by Ted Nicholas, um, who's the world's most successful uh, self-published author, probably the best marketer in the world, in my opinion. And um, I, Ted recommended it to me, then somebody else recommended it, and I bought it and read it and loved it. And I just give it to people all the time and say, read this, it'll change your life, <laughs> you know, uh, and, it, and it really does. It gets you to really focus. Um, one part of it, uh, which I absolutely love, and it's in part of the stuff that I read every morning, because one of the things I read every day is I read my purpose to make sure that I start the day on purpose. And at the bottom, of my purpose statement, which is quite a few words, it says, I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man or ask another man to live for mine, which is a direct quote by John Galt in Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, uh, I, I love that stuff. I've read a lot of Ayn Rand. And some of it's very challenging. You obviously know it. Um, uh, it. You know, it can be quite challenging. But nevertheless, it gets you to think very clearly about what you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it.
1: Absolutely. And one of her other books, uh, was one of my favorites growing up. It was Fountainhead. And yes, uh, it was something that, it. uh, yeah, left a profound impression on me. And so, yeah, it's, uh, I'll de- we'll definitely include these books uh, on the show links and, uh, for yeah. the benefit of the audience. And, uh, we're going to shift gears here, Peter, and uh, we're going to get into some of the questions that we've received uh, from our audience. And, uh, so one of the questions, the first question is, in your opinion, what stops people from achieving their full potential?
2: That's a super question. There's a friend of mine. His name's Jeff Petty. He has an expression. Here we go. I'm, I'm linking into your very first question of today. <laughs> so <laughs> and his expression, I think, really sums it up. And he said, um, most people reach the limit of their belief well before they reach the limit of their talent. Hmm. Um, And I think that is so true. And I think it's the reason that most people don't reach their potential is they run out of belief before they run out of talent and they run out of belief in themselves and they end up all the time comparing themselves with others rather than comparing themselves with what they've achieved in the past and then what they might achieve in the future. So this is back to measuring backwards. Yeah? And I think this, is, this gets in the way. And the second thing, and so that's a quick explanation there. And The second thing is I think a lot of people don't set goals. So they're not really clear, back to clarity, they're not really clear what it is that they're trying to achieve. They have some vague picture of what the future looks like rather than a crystal clear target so they know exactly what it is they're aiming for and they can measure against it. I have a little four-stage process I, which I can share with you, which is as simple as this: goal, plan, action, feedback. So I say to people: set yourself a goal. Can be anything you like. Make sure it's really clear. You understand what it is, and make sure it's something that juices you. That's something you go, well, yeah, I'm going to go for this. You know, it's going to be to be exciting. It's going to be massively exciting. That you'd give up almost anything to get it. You know, you just really got to be going for it if, it. if this is a life goal type thing, that and that it links to your purpose if you've managed to find that for your life, and it can take years to find your true purpose. Then when you've done the goal, you've established what the goal is, then take half a day to write the plan. And most people, you know, who are into goals, they set goals, but don't do the planning. Most people don't even set the goals. But do the plan so at least you know How are you going to get there? And perhaps towards the end of our conversation, I'll share a little idea with you called the yesterday's road method. If you remind me and ask me and I'll share a method. So, you know, the the actions to take to achieve any goal. And so you then decide on those actions and then you take them. And when you've taken the actions, you get some feedback. And so you measure the feedback against the goal. If the feedback says you're on track, keep taking the actions. If the feedback says you're not on track, stop taking the actions and do something different. Or check that the plan's right. You know, it couldn't be simpler. Goal, plan, action, feedback.
1: I uh, like that. That's so simple and easy to remember and it's so mm-hmm. effective. And uh, totally, it's feedback, as we say, is the breakfast of champions. And uh, I kind of want to go back to your, uh, some of the expressions that you've coined. And these are so memorable. I mean, I've been reading some of these and... I think uh, they're very Zen-like uh, phrases and quotes and it really sticks with you when you think about it and reflect on it. So yeah. one of the ones that uh, I personally am curious about you have in here is time and distance travel compounds the effect of errors. Could you, could you say something about that?
2: Yes, indeed. And um, this again is feedback, funnily enough, because, and you picked up there, obviously, it's time and distance traveled compounds the effective error. So let's imagine, for example, let's go back to the golf thing we were talking about, because I think anybody could understand that. Let's say you hit a golf ball down the middle of the fairway, or you hope to, but the golf club face is fractionally in the wrong direction. So instead of being square to the ball at impact to hit it straight, it's fractionally open or closed. Yeah? And so it means that the further the ball flies away from you, the more the error is compounded. So time and distance compounds the effective error. Mm. Same way, somebody was bowling a bowling ball down the bowling lane to aim at the ten pins. You know, you've got to aim at either the one-two or the one-three pocket in order to get a strike. You can't hit the head pin straight on; otherwise, you get a split. So somebody bowls it down the lanes, but the fractional mistake made at the point of releasing the ball means that as time continues and distance continues, that error is magnified. So time and distance compounds the effective error. How do we use it? It's as simple as this. We have to measure sooner than we think. So for example, go back to the golfing analogy. Let's imagine I've got a friend who's standing down the fairway with a big bat. And as he sees the ball veering off target, he reaches up with the big bat, knocks it back towards the middle. In other words, we've measured early and we've taken corrective action. Just like the pilot on a plane, a plane doesn't fly directly from A to B. It's, it's zigzagging along the way, orbit fractionally, as the pilot corrects course, based on the headwinds, the tailwinds, the sidewinds, the storms, the clouds, the ups and downs, whatever it might be. So, time and distance, if you don't correct quickly, will compound the effect of any error you make at the start of any journey. Therefore, you have to measure early, measure often.
1: That's uh, so great, beautiful. Uh, the next question is, what was the best piece of advice you've received in life?
2: Wow, that's a cracker, isn't it? Um, what's the best piece of advice I've received in life? I think it probably came from Earl Nightingale. And I think it is uh, The Strangest Secret. No, I think that is what it is, is that, as Earl Nightingale said, you become what you think about all day long. You know, Napoleon Hill said, what the mind of man can." Conceive and believe it can achieve Uh, that was taken from a quote by Marcus Aurelius. I think every philosophy every uh, learning every Method of being more successful somewhere within it will contain the idea that what you think about is is what will happen Uh, and I happen to be an absolute adherent and believer in that that the thoughts in my mind create my reality, and I don't mean in some sort of woo-woo way. I just mean this: in if I am positive, I'm likely to get positive outcomes. If I'm negative, I'm likely to get negative outcomes. You know, I've said to people who are a bit sort of skeptical about this, I said, "Would you get up in the morning, sit on the side of the bed, and program your mind to catch an incurable disease?" And they go, "No, I wouldn't dream of it." I said, "Well, why not?" They said, "Well, it might happen." I say, well, in that case, what about sitting on the side of the bed and programming that you're going to have a cracking day? <laughs> oh, oh, that's just silly. That's just, you know. Well, no, it isn't, because if the one would work, why wouldn't the other one?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very inspiring. And yeah. it's, uh, it's like going back to that Napoleon Hill quote as well, which is whatever a man's mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. And uh, that's I right. think uh, that's, uh, that's really great. Uh, the next question is, what is a lesson that took you the longest to learn?
2: Ooh wow okay um that is a great question and i've never been asked that before that's that's a super question here's the here's the answer that what i had to offer really had value Hmm. could you say a little more about that i can yes i think for any author um Most authors of informational products, probably in their heart of hearts, if they're being totally honest, will at some stage have a thought running through their mind. I wonder when they'll find out I'm not that real. (laughs) And and I don't mean that we're being false in any way, shape or form, but that, you know, we share these ideas in the absolute belief of them working because we know they work from our own lives and from our previous clients lives because we see the difference that we make out there in the world but sometimes great ideas as you know Cal because we're discussing it today can be so darn simple <laughs> that you know you just wonder whether or not people think it's it, is it really that simple yes it absolutely is so I think I've often lived with the the curse of all authors that I wonder when they'll find out that it's really very simple to know this stuff <laughs> and I'm sharing these things but I hope they never find out that I'm you know you know exactly <laughs> that I <to> understand. <laughs> no no it's, it's it's
1: true I think well, we all go through that and I think the I think it's got a scientific term to it I think it's called imposter syndrome or It is. That's right. Know. Yeah, it's, uh, that's so great that you mentioned that. Uh, and this is a perfect segue into getting into some of the product uh, creation and marketing questions. But before I do that, I would be remiss really if I didn't congratulate you for the Lifetime Achievement Award that uh, you won ah. by the Institute of Sales Management. Uh, so really, congratulations on that.
2: Oh, thank you, so much. I was very chuffed. I was there at the dinner. I didn't know I'd won it. it 700 people in the room. It was a black tie dinner. And, uh, and yeah, it was the last award of the evening, being the Lifetime Achievement one. And uh, there I was upon stage collecting it from Jimmy Carr and going, wow, I'm pleased with that. That's very good. Yeah. It's nice, nice to get recognition from time to time, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. That's so great. So getting into the product marketing questions. So the first one uh, I have for you is... How to find, and one, and it comes from your, one of your expressions, and that is the income you get will always reflect the outcome that someone else gets. And it's really, uh, for me, when I read that, it means that you're really adding value and focusing on the customer. So the question is, you know, when you're creating a product for somebody who's never created their products or they're looking at starting their own company or they're trying to create their first product, you know, one could go about trying to looking at what they're passionate about and then creating a product, and they, that may or may not have resonance in the marketplace. The other way to look at it is there is a market demand, the market is hungry for something, and then you create a product that meets the market's needs. So the question is, how does one go about finding a profitable marketing category uh, or a product category
2: or a niche? Correct. Let me pick up on two words that you used there, Carl, which for me were opposite ends of the scale. And you were talking about the fact that there's a market that's passionate, right? And you were talking about people's needs. I was advised by Ted Nicholas probably 20 years ago uh, not to try and market towards needs. And he said to to me, he said, Peter, if you will follow the advice of most people, which is go out and find a need and satisfy it, you will go bust. He said, you do not do that. He said, you go out and find a want, which is how you started that sentence, by the way, because that's what you were talking about. You were talking about wants, what people want to buy rather than what people need to buy. So for me, the first thing is if one was looking at creating a product, and this is just one of many ways, is to find out what it is that people want to buy. And you can soon find out what people want to buy because they're searching for it. So, you know, go into Google, do the AdWords and, and do, go for the keywords and find out what people want to buy. Or do surveys. I love doing surveys. Um, and as long as you do them well, then you can find out what people actually want to buy from you. Um, it happened for me just a couple of months ago. We were doing a survey on uh, about writing a book. And we asked people on this survey whether they wanted to do it, learn on webinars, whether they wanted to learn on small group coaching sessions, they wanted to learn on a massive uh, seminar and various other ways of learning from me. And the one that came back up was webinars. And so we set up a paid for webinar series um, at, in response to what the market wanted, not what it needed. So there's, there's the first point on that. The second point, and you made the point here as well, Cal, is about being passionate. One way of finding market is be so passionate about what it is you do, the market finds you. Now, I know that's a bit strange, and for a marketer, it's a bit, oh, you're sure, Peter? Yes, I've launched a number of products where i had done no research whatsoever, but I was so passionate about sharing my ideas with people, making a difference for them, and as a result of it getting paid, because my other expression for this, Cal, is this, money is only the silent applause for a job well done, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to be chased. Don't chase the money. The money will find you if you do it well. So money is only ever the silent applause for a job well done. And it's only ever an oblique goal, not the main reason you do stuff. So if you're really passionate about making a difference in the world in a particular niche area, the market will find you. Now do you have to put yourself out there? Of course you do. Have you got to have a Facebook page or a LinkedIn page or whatever is appropriate to your market? Of course you have. Have you got to be posting good quality material out there and giving stuff away? Of course you have. That's all part of the journey. Of course it happens like that. But be passionate or do darn good research, surveys, AdWords, test, test, test. The biggest word in marketing is testing, as you know, until you find what it is that people want to buy. Then once you've found what they want, you can start testing the price of various things so that you're positioning the price and their wants, that they match each other and people will buy from you. And I could talk about this in, in detail as much as you want me to for a, a long time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that is great. And and this brings up another question too. And as uh, as we all know that when we are building a business, product services or programs, the name of the product can make a direct impact on our brand on bank account. And so the question is, is there a method to the madness in the sense how to name your product so that it sells itself?
2: Yes, there is. Let me give some, everybody a resource. There's a book called My First Hundred Million Books by E. Haldeman Julius. E, letter E, next word, Haldeman, H-A-L-D-E-R-M-A-N. I'm not sure if it's double N. But I don't think it is, no. Uh, Julius, J-U-L-I-U-S. And E. Haldeman Julius used to sell from adverts years ago in America, little blue books and they were five cents each. And he put columns and columns of the titles in the papers. And people would tick, they'd tear out the thing, they'd tick the co- the books that they wanted, they'd add up their five cents and they'd send in their dollar, two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever it happened to be. And E. Hallem and Julius used to test titles. He had what he called the hospital. If a title wasn't selling, he'd bring it back in, he'd look again at the product, he'd retitle it, put it back out in the marketplace. And that's what we have to do. So that's the first thing. We need to test titles to find out what works. Secondly, we need to be focusing the title on the benefits that the reader, watcher, listener is going to get from that particular product. Or we've got to have an intriguing one. One of the best titles I've ever seen, and this is from a friend of mine, uh, Alan Peace, Alan and Barbara Peace, who wrote this series. And Alan and Barbara did brilliantly with this book, and it was called Why Men Don't Listen and Women Can't Read Maps. Hmm. Now, that is a genius of a title, absolute genius of a title. There is a process to this, and if you can try and answer these three things in the title, the person it's aimed at The problem they've got and the possible solution
1: Mm.
2: Now if you can find a title that matches those three, let me give you a title of my best ever Downloaded free report. It's this it's called the shocking report the seven big mistakes that business owners unwittingly make Costing them a fortune in lost turnover lost profits and what's even worse lost personal cash and what to do about it Now that is an immensely long title (laughs) <laughs> but it does what it says on the tin. It, wow. You know who saying that, business owners. You know what problem they've got, uh, losing cash and profits. You know there's a solution because it says so. There, there's the title. Now, if you've got a really focused niche market, then you can do it differently. For example, let me give you an idea, um, two-word title for a book, Back Question mark. Hmm. You know what it is. It, you don't need to say who it is. You don't need to say the solution because it's implied with the question mark, right? Because you go back pain. In other words, it's saying, have you got back pain? Because if you have, I've got a solution for you. No, and just that's a, yeah, it great.
1: That's really great. Uh, the next question is, uh, what are some of the best ways uh, to monetize your content online?
2: Any tips uh, on that? Yes, indeed, I can. Um, the best way to monetize content is to make the first sale an easy sale in other words reduce the barrier to entry as j abraham would say so make the first sale an easy sale by offering something of good good value either for free or for a small payment and these days one of the easiest ways to do that is with a complete book offered as a free download that's a great way of doing that or allow somebody access to all your information for a very small price so that you, there's no risk for them, or if the risk is there, it's absolutely minor risk that somebody would be prepared to take. So that's the first way. And the second way is this, is always have a deluxe version of your basic products that sells for a five to ten times more than the basic version.
1: Mm. That's great. That's really great. Yeah. So it's uh, essentially, uh, to recap that, it's uh, having a free product, really a low barrier to entry basically uh, for people to try it out uh, absolutely (laughs) risk-free and offering tons of value even in that free product so that they are really uh, uh, deriving a lot of uh, trust and value out of it and then they come to buy a deluxe product that you have.
2: Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly that. Because as, as Gordon Herschel Lewis said in his sale, book that said sales letters that sizzle, Cal, he said, fire your big guns first. Right? Mm. So if you've got some good information, pick your best information and share that first, because then people go, wow, this person knows some good stuff. If you try and hide your good stuff to page three of the book or uh, the 17th time somebody interacts with you, they never get there. You, you know, you got to fire your big guns first. Share some really good, solid stuff.
1: No, that's uh, that's great. Really great. Great point. Uh, and this is another question from one of our audiences, and this is, if you were given two products to build from scratch, yeah. but only had the time and resources to build one, how would you yeah. decide which to build, and how would you go about it?
2: Easy peasy. Easy peasy. The first thing I would always make is the book, all right, because the book is – a So simple to write these days. I mean, I've actually got online software that people use in my groups to write the book. But this is the basic process. I learned from Dan Sullivan and Joe Polish about the length of books and their popularity of readership these days. Let me share the stats with you. Uh, Joe and Dan were saying that if your book is about 60 to 80 pages, you're going to get 80 to 100 percent readership. As soon as the book hits about 100 pages, your readership is going to drop to about 3 percent. And when your book gets 200 pages, your readership is going to drop to one percent. Now, if you want people to read your information, which I do, if you want them to take it away and use it, which I do, if you want them to be more successful by applying it, which I do, then you've got to get them to read it in the first place. So don't make 200 page books, make books of 80 pages and it sells for the same price as a 200 page book anyway. So you might as well write three books, at 240 pages and make three times the money. So there's the first idea. Then think of the script of your book as only ever the words for the subsequent products you will make, which will make you a lot of money. The book is only ever the starting point. You'll then take those words and create uh, a video program, an online mentoring program, a physical mentoring program, uh, a series, uh, a portal, a subscription product, whatever it might be. The book is just a way of getting the stuff out of your head and onto paper.
1: Wow. Now, that is tons of value right there for our audience. And then the other question is, what is the most effective way to involve your customer in product creation? Or should
2: we? To involve them in the product creation? Well, the the way I would do that, the way I've done it in the past and still do it today, uh, is, is surveys. It's, fi- it's finding out from people what it is they want or how they want to receive it. We te- it's very easy to judge the market as being exactly like ourselves and say, I like this, therefore they will like this. It's not always the case. And so it's a case of doing lots of surveys. And these days with tools like SurveyMonkey, which I don't get paid commission for, by the way, um, you know, it's so simple to use. You can personalize it. You can make it look pretty. You know, you've got multiple different types of styles of questions you can ask. And I think if you can then ask people to give you information and then maybe even finish with a question where would you like me to contact you to have more of a conversation about it, we use this as a process in my business. It just works like gangbusters.
1: That's great. And this is more of a sales kind of question instead of a product creation question. And this is how to explain what you do in a way that makes people say, I need your
2: help? Yeah, another good question. Let's let's put the philosophy behind that first on the table, so we understand where we're going on this. I'm I'm a great believer in you have to learn how to sell, Mm yeah. But I'm equally a believer that you then have to stop selling and allow people to buy, and because that is much better positioning than trying to persuade people. The way I say it, Carl, is I'm not here to convince anybody. I'm here to be convincing, and that's different. So I'm being convincing because the quality of the information I have to share that I've been fortunate to pick up over the years is darn good stuff that actually works. And you've gathered that today. We we haven't talked any fluffy stuff here. We've talked about down to earth, practical stuff you can take away and use. So that's being convincing, not trying to convince. There's a big difference. So learn how to sell. Stop selling. Be convincing, don't convince people. Then, if you want people to be involved, then always treat them as though they have said yes, not as though they will say yes. Oh,
1: I like that. I really like that. That's assuming that they uh, they always have said yes, and that's how you talk to them. That's great. And then, uh, this is an interesting question, Peter. What is one thing that you would change on your favorite product and why? Why?
2: Right, okay. Ah, another good question. My favorite product is the Achievers Club. And the thing that I would change with it, which in fact we're in the process of changing right now, so that's why it's the right answer, is the platform on which it operates. Because I want it to be even sexier than it is today. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: that
1: is that is great okay and then final question within the product marketing category here and that is do you have any tips because most of our audiences here are consultants coaches executives Mm want to be coaches and uh, entrepreneurs so one of the questions is do you have any tips so that coaches could attract more of the clients you want and less of the ones you don't
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah. I was taught this. I'm always, as you gathered, I always credit the source of my information, right, which I think is a very important thing to do. I interviewed a guy called Roy H. Williams, and uh, he's known as the Wizard of Ads. He's based in Austin, Texas. And he taught me something. This is about 10 to 15 years ago. And he taught me the difference between relational clients and transactional customers. Let me share it with you very briefly. He said to me this, and this changed the way I did business. He said, Peter, you have to decide whether or not you're wishing to attract the relational client or the transactional customer. Here's the difference. The transactional customer is their own expert and buys everything based on price. The relational client looks for you, the supplier, the coach, the consultant, whatever it might be, to be the expert. And price becomes a factor, not the factor. So the first decision to make, if you're a coach, consultant, speaker, trainer, want to be coach, whatever it might be, is to decide who you want to attract. Now, if you want to attract, as I think you probably do, as I do, the relational client who looks to you to be the expert, then you better look like an expert. You better sound like an expert. You better have a website that says you're an expert. You better have prices that reflect your expert status. You don't want to be shopped as a commodity. You are not a loaf of bread. You are special. You have knowledge, experience, expertise, and you have the special magic ingredient which most people totally undervalue, which is their take on it. Nobody else has your personal take. So decide to be the expert. Charge expert prices. Walk and talk and act like the expert. And therefore, the clients you will attract will be clients and not customers. It's... it's, It's that positioning, it's that posture, it's that price, and it all starts in your own mind.
1: Yep, that's so great. That's perfect. And then moving on to our our next section, and we won't get through all of it, but uh, we'll try to do as much as we can. And this is the fun section, the rapid-fire round, and I'll ask you a bunch of quick questions, uh, and whatever the first response that comes to mind. If you feel to elaborate on it, feel free to do so. So are you ready, Peter? I am okay. So the first question is: Who is your favorite music band?
2: You know, <laughs> I'm not really heavily into music in a big way, but I would say something like um, Pentatonics, who are a cappella band, uh, and I just love their voices blended together with no musical instruments. I think they're just amazing.
1: Great. The next question is: Whose brain would you like to pick?
2: Right. Earl Nightingale's.
1: Mm. If you could be successful in another profession, which would you choose? Teacher. Mm. Do you believe in magic? Yes. And if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be?
2: Oh, wow. Um, I, I, you know. I I think it would have been... I would have been there when Martin Luther King gave the I Have a Dream speech. Oh, that's so great. And then uh, the five most important things
1: in life, according to you.
2: Okay. Uh, Number one has to be, be selfish. (laughs) Because unless you are selfish with your time, with your money, with your attitude, with your love, with your respect... You you will spread it too thin and you won't impact anybody and you have to start with being selfish You have to look after you number one, you know selfish for me is the most positive word in the dictionary But I have no negative connotation with it most people do I have no negative connotation Look after yourself first and therefore you can look after others. I know this is glib um, Cal, But you know they say on the plane put your mask on before you help somebody else and that is just so true You have to do that. So Definitely, you've got to be selfish. You've got to be happy. You've got to be positive. You've got to believe. And you've got to be prepared to put your head above the parapet, knowing full well, the closer you get to goal, you are going to get tripped and kicked. It's just the price you pay.
1: I love it. That's no, so great. And then the final question within the rapid fire round, and that is, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be?
2: oh god i love these questions <laughs> oh, um oh, it's um uh gosh okay I, I think it would be you become what you think about no i'll change it what you say will be the way
1: i uh, like that what you say will be the way that's awesome and then moving on to our final section here and that's the wrap-up section and i have just the final three questions for you peter and the first one is what is your current personal or business passion project uh, that you're looking forward to in the next six months to a year
2: right um i have a number of key things i do in a way that i share information but my the big thing that i work on is the achievers club um, I ran a newsletter called The Achiever's Edge for 16 years. It was an audio newsletter. Originally, it was on cassette, would you believe? Then it was on CD. And then I stopped for a few years, and then I've relaunched it just in the last year and put it as an online portal called theachieversclub.com. And I am loading over time all, all of the material I've ever created and all the material I create today. So that there's this amazingly, and not just my material, other people's as well, this amazing online resource which people can access 24-7, anywhere they're connected, that can help them build for themselves a business, a career, and a life of choice.
1: Uh, that's great. And I want to ask you, going back to uh, something that you said you're going to share with us, a uh, yesterday's road method. Is that to give us tips on
2: that? I, I will. It is so simple. When I sold the business... Halfway through the earn-out year, we lost a major funder. We hadn't done anything wrong. They just moved out of the marketplace. And it looked as though we wouldn't hit the second target that we put in place and wouldn't get the second tranche of the money. So I gathered my director team together, and I said, guys, this is what the deal is. Let's imagine it's next March. This was in the September. Let's imagine it's next March, six months to go, and we haven't hit the numbers, and we're not going to get the extra 1.6 million pounds. Now, remember, this is nearly 30 years ago, Cal. You know, we're talking 1.6 million. Today's a money. But 30 years ago, is an awful lot more money. So I said, "This, I want you to answer this question for me. Get in the state that you, we have not got the money and ask this question of yourself. If only I'd dot, 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 ellipsis, we would have achieved the target. What are the dots? Now, it's not if only the government. It's not if only the sales team. It's not if only the weather. It's not if only the competition. It's personal total responsibility, if only I'd. I sent them away for half an hour. They came back with their reports. In the meantime, I did mine. I spent the rest of the day collating all the information and created an action plan for every single day from September to March. And every morning, every single morning when we came into work, we looked at the action plan and we did the stuff we knew would make the difference. Six months later, we sawed through the numbers and got the second tranche of the money. And I have used the idea with its sister one, which I must share with you to make it work ever since in every area of my life. And I've taught it to everybody I ever meet. So the second version is once you've done the negative one, if only I'd, you then change state Then you go forward again to the point when you should have achieved the goal and you imagine this time you have achieved it and you go I achieved it because I and you write down anything else your mind wants to tell you So you've left yourself in positive state about achieving your goal You've got a complete list of all the actions that you need to take because you know you better than anyone else And this can work for anything in any single area of your life social personal or business, and it's awesome. Brian Tracy, who I know you know of, on side one of the latest iteration of the psychology of achievement says this. My friend Peter Thompson in the UK has a method to establish the exact actions to achieve any goal. Let me share it with you.
1: That is so great. I really love that, and I appreciate you sharing this uh, valuable uh, technique with uh, all of our audience here. And uh, the next question I have for you is, Is there what are three things you're grateful for in life?
2: I'm grateful for my attitude. I'm grateful for my wife. And I'm grateful for my colleagues who have stayed with me so long and helped me make such a difference out there. And as a result of this, enable me and them to have a business and a life of choice.
1: Uh, Amazing. I love that. Uh, I want to acknowledge you, Peter, for a few things here. One is that your incredible passion uh, for looking at opportunities and looking to serve the community, the coaches, the clients, the customers that uh, you've been serving over the last uh, 45 plus years. And the ability to look at opportunities, the ability to create systems and uh, leave a legacy behind, it's such a powerful thing that we can all draw inspiration from. And mm-hmm. you're continuing to add value to uh, with the way you're creating products and making it simpler and simpler and more effective uh, for new entrepreneurs coaches and consultants who want to learn the best of the best uh from the very best and i I really uh, uh think that what you've done and what you've shared and what you continue to create is such a great uh inspiration for all of us so thank you
2: yeah, I'm absolutely my pleasure it's been a real pleasure to, and I love these questions these are the best questions I've had for a long long time thank you Carl
1: uh, my pleasure and uh, one final question and this is how we wrap up all our interviews and that is why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of France? it's
2: as simple as this the day that you stop learning is the day that you stop earning The world is moving so quickly in every single area that two things are still appropriate. Number one, you've got to keep on the edge. And number two, all of the basic information that teaches anyone to be more successful if they want to be more successful in life and live a life of choice is gained from listening to others who've been there and done it if we're going to go there and do it and what you've managed to do with wisdom of friends is create this amazing bank this library if you will this asset of information of tried and tested and proven ideas that anyone can tap into and shortcut their journey to success with less money, less time, less energy, but with the amount of focus and passion that you get by listening to people who are passionate about their own subject. I think you've created something fantastic.
1: Thank you, Peter. I truly appreciate those words and uh, valued our conversation here this afternoon. And uh, for those of us who are listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank Thank you. you. This has been a Seven Symphonies production Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.